0: morning. I'm not on social media, so I couldn't brag about the buck that I killed this week. It was a mole about that big in my backyard. So I, 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 you don't need a license. So um, it was with a fire. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, we're finishing up this series, and it was a little strange this morning. Uh, I've I forgotten. It's been so long since I started. I think I've been preaching sermons since 1994, or 1995, not including the student ministry stuff that I did before that, so it was a little weird for me this morning when we sat down uh, to pray with the pastors and uh, worship leaders. We gathered for prayer on Sunday mornings to pray for the services uh, about 8.15, and Pastor Andrew, this is the, he's a relatively new pastor, so he's preached in sermon series before, but he's never preached a sermon series before, and he was a little uh, like, "I not I still got stuff to say. Uh, it's a little weird that it, this, this thing is coming to an end, but I want you to know that this thing's coming to an end. Um, not the story of Christ, but this particular series. Next week is the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and then the Sunday after that is the first Sunday in Advent. I just want to let you know going in that Advent, uh, you know, it, it, we have those themes in Advent, the kind of traditional themes, hope, love, joy, peace. And we're going to be doing that, but we're going to be looking at the other side of it because the Advent is, is preparing for the coming of Christ. It's pretending, it's for Christians, it's pretending that, that we're anticipating Jesus' birth even though he was born about 2,000 years ago. But there's the scripture passage that talks about for such a time as this. Jesus didn't come because the world was so good. He came because it was so awful. So, um, we're going to look at hope, but we're going to look at despair. We're going to look at the other side of Advent as we walk through it. And I'm just letting you know about that. And the very first passage that we preach from in Advent will be 400 years after the message today. It will be the beginning of the book of Exodus. We won't stay there, but just so you know where we're headed. The other thing I want to do before we get started is I want to greet those of you who are joining us online. And we have some members from our church, believe, that are in Dubai. And I don't know how the timing works out if you're watching right now, but if so. That would be the first time we know of anyone watching from Dubai. Uh, if you're local and you're joining us, um, we're glad you're joining us. If you're homebound or not feeling well and you chose it this way uh, this morning, we're, great, we're glad we have the technology. But if you're local and you're just checking us out, we would love to meet you face to face and hand to hand. And those of you who aren't local, this is something that the staff has been reminding me to do and I keep forgetting. So. Um, We're glad you're joining us. We really are, and we hope you continue. Uh, But do it later. Uh, Instead, we would encourage you to find a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church uh, and join the group of... Fellowship of Believers face-to-face and hand-to-hand. If you need help finding one, uh, we've got some crack researchers. That So if you send us a message on the online interaction here and you ask us to seek out, uh, try to help you find a church that is Bible-believing and Bible-preaching, uh, we will do our best to help point you in the right direction. Um, other than that, uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time this morning uh, and haven't been part of this series in a nutshell, the series is about a man named Joseph. Abraham God made some covenants with, his son Isaac uh, made some covenants with, his son Jacob made some covenants with. Joseph is Jacob's son, not his oldest son, but one of his younger ones. But he was, he was, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And um, he gave them this, he gave him this richly ornamented robe. He kind of, kind of, kind of favored him. And his brothers hated him for it. And so one day when Jacob sent Joseph off to check on the well-being of his brothers, um, they decided to kill him. And then they talked themselves out of killing him, so they sold him into slavery. And so, he went off into Egypt into slavery. He was a slave, and then he got in trouble with his boss's wife. He didn't actually do anything wrong, but because he was well-built and handsome, the wife wanted a piece of him, and he said no, so he got thrown into prison. He was in prison for six or seven years, and God used him to interpret some dreams for the king who believes he's divine, Pharaoh, uh, telling him that there's going to be a famine. uh, It's going to be plenty and then famine, and then somehow, some way, God orchestrated history. It's just the way God works to set Joseph up to be the chief of staff, the second in command in all of Egypt to save the known world. Now, Jacob's brothers or Joseph's brothers had run out of food when the famine kicks in and they make a trek to Egypt to buy food Joseph is the one they buy food from. He knows they're his brothers, but they don't know he's their brother. And so, he tests them, and they make another trip back a few weeks later, and he tests them again. And Then they go back and they bring their dad, and all is resolved, and it all looks good, and we forget that it took three decades. We think that they intended something for evil, God intended something for good. We're going to read that actual quote today. The family is reunited, and God is setting the Israelites up to prosper for about hundred years. And then, three hundred years after that, it's going to be really ugly. But they're going to go from being about seventy people to being tens of thousands, probably closer to four hundred thousand people in the next four hundred years. So it's all set. We're going to finish it up today, and we're going to do. I'm going to do my best to show you how Joseph is and I and I didn't name the sermon Harbinger because I didn't want everyone to think this is about Jonathan Kahn's book the harbinger, um, that it's going to be all about prophecy and all that kind of thing. But this is what this is. It's a harbinger. God has been telling the same story time and time and time and time again. It is the story of God. And Joseph, a lot of things that happened to a lot of places that Joseph goes, where Joseph travels, happened to Jesus. And so when when Jesus shows up and these things are said about him and he says certain things, the people that hear, the original hearers, the, the, the readers of the gospels, they're hearkening. Back to Joseph, they know this story, and as Christians, we should know those connections as well. I'm not going to get to all of them, but we'll get to enough. Now, I want to give you a couple of things about this passage before we read it. One, um, there's some modern Western uh, sensibilities that we have that ancient Egyptian culture did not have: the idea that the state or that the um, that the kingdom owns takes over all the land, and people are in, in servitude to the, to the king. We don't like that. We're rugged individualists. We're Americans. We like it the way we, we're kind of in control of our own destiny. I'm asking you not to put Western modern sensibilities on this text. The other thing is that I think the strangest verse in all of Scripture is in this passage, and I'm guessing you'll, I'll, I'll give you a heads up when we get to it, but it's a little weird. Um, reads like this. So this, after the families all reunited, um, there was no food, however, in the whole region before the famine, uh, for the, because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and in Canaan in payment for grain that they were buying. And he brought it, all the money, to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. And then, uh, then bring your livestock, said Joseph, and I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle, and donkeys." And he brought them or and he bought them, or excuse me, and he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. Now, a couple of things, a couple of little foreshadows or a couple of little callbacks, uh, to just the last chapter. You remember that the Israelites, the seven are the twelve eleven patriarchs of of the uh, nation of Israel, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph and then all of his brothers, uh, they had been brought to Egypt and what they were going to settle in Goshen. We'll hear a little bit more about that in a minute. But what were they? Were they farmers? Shepherds, right? They tended livestock. And you remember that Pharaoh had said to Joseph, send them up in Goshen. You know, they don't really care much for the herder type people. So, uh, but if any of your brothers are really good at what they do, put them in charge of my livestock. So, when they're collecting all this livestock, who gets to tend them? Who gets to take care of and, and, and prosper or uh, oversee Pharaoh's livestock? The people of Israel, the people that they abhor. So, it goes on from here. Um, when that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, "We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord to accept." Uh, excuse me. There is nothing left for our Lord to accept. Accept, our, bo- accept and accept. I have a little trouble. For our Lord, except for our bodies and our land, why should why should we perish before your eyes? We in our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. And we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die and that the land may not become desolate. Now, this is the modern sensibility thing. I don't like the idea... That, that a king or a servant of God who serves a king um, would, would take the land from people and have the people being servitude. But it's not that dissimilar from maybe the Middle Ages when you think about the Knights of Camelot and all that kind of stuff. You have the king who owns everything and the lords who are the, actually the pro- have property that they own that they're responsible for. But all the other people, if you weren't a landowner, you had no power. Um, not that dissimilar from this. But I want you to see too that while Joseph collected it all, look at look at what he does in return. How he he kind of gives it back to them, but they are willing to sell themselves. And it's it's wise as a king. I mean, if if you're not going to let your people die, because then you got no one to rule over. So there, Joseph is smart. It's not Western smart. It's ancient Eastern smart. But he goes on from. Uh, so Joseph brought, bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their, sold their fields uh, because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests uh, because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough for, from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. This is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now... Uh, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you and you can plant the, so that you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth. Give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves, your household, and your children. You've saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh." Now, there are some of us that would love to have only a 20% tax, right? 20% of everything that you bring in, you give away to the state or to Pharaoh. Um, but. I want you to notice that, that the priesthood now these aren't like priests that we would think of as priests but these are pagan priests. They had said and we found archaeological evidence actually that three, four maybe even 500 years later the priests had this land and they actually inscribed the copy of this tablet or this, this papyrus that they had received from Pharaoh. This is several pharaohs prior and they had it set up there that this land belongs to this priesthood because a pharaoh who was divine from so far back said it. Now we have We have evidence, archaeological evidence, that people were claiming that this little piece of scripture is true. The other piece that you may not recognize that you'll see here in just a second in this passage is that that all in all of Egypt and all of Canaan all the money was gone. And in all of Egypt, all the property was gone except for these priests and this other small little remnant of people. Everyone's taxed on their grain. But not on their livestock because no one owns livestock except for the Israelis or the Hebrew people, Jacob and his kids, and Pharaoh. So God is setting up these Israelis, these Hebrew people, these, these children of Abraham to prosper and to own land when no one else gets to own it. Look at what it says. It says, you have saved our life. Okay. So Joseph established it as law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today. That's one from the time that Moses wrote this that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now, here's the weird thing. Now, the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt. Jacob is Joseph's dad. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel, that's, his, that's the other name for Jacob, when Israel, for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, here's the weirdest verse in all of Scripture, in my opinion. If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show kindness, show me kindness and faithfulness. Okay, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, shake a hand, swear a blood oath, sign your name on the dotted line, but put your hand under my thigh and swear an oath to me? I've done some research on this and you don't really want to know. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, swear it to me. And then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now, if you know this story, if you've grown up with this story, if you've learned this story when you were in Sunday school on felt boards or in PowerPoints or with great presentation from um, the student ministry's staff of whatever church you were in when you learned this, you know that there's a quote in the scriptures that, that we always land on. And it's a great one. It doesn't show up until after, though. Joseph or Israel Jacob is dead and buried the brother he dies Joseph there's a lot of j's here Jacob dies Joseph goes to Pharaoh asks Pharaoh for permission for him and his brothers to take his dad's body his remains back and bury him amongst his forefathers in a grave that he had purchased earlier He gets permission. So he goes with this contingent of Egyptians. They go back to Canaan, back to what we know as Israel. They bury their father. They go through this process of mourning. They come back. Everything is back to the way it was. And then the brothers start freaking out because they've lost their father's protection. They're afraid that their brother Joseph, who's who's second in command in all of Egypt, is going to hold their sins against them and punish them, hold a grudge. And that's in chapter 50. And it goes like this. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? See, they're not not denying that they did him wrong. And when they, uh, so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions. Now we don't know if Jacob actually left these instructions or if the brothers are trying to say, dad said, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. Ask, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. So please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came, to Joseph, or, uh, message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. Remember the dreams that Joseph got at the very beginning that his brothers would bow before him? Here it is. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And, and he reassured them and spoke kindly of them. Now, I got to give you this. I got to just, this is a tiny little nugget. Not that important, but just, there are no accidents in Scripture. God knows exactly what he's doing. If you remember the very first couple of paragraphs of this story, Jacob was 17 years old, and his, he was the son, or Joseph was 17. He was the son of Jacob, and he favored him, and he, he loved him more than the others, and he gave him a richly ornamented robe, and his brothers hated him for it, and they could not speak a kind word about him. They couldn't bless him. They couldn't talk amongst each other well of him. They couldn't say anything nice to him. It says they could not speak kindly about him. And then all the way around, full circle, here's Joseph. At the end, when he should be, he has every right in the world to hold against his brothers. But the very beginning, they could not say a kind word. And at the very end, and Joseph spoke kindly to them. And that word isn't used very often in Scripture, the Hebrew word. So God, through the author of the book of Genesis, is trying to let us know that God's intent was even though they were evil toward him, him, through worship of the Father in heaven, is not going to return evil with evil, but evil with kindness. Does that sound familiar? When Jesus says to his people, don't return evil with evil, but evil with kindness. When Jesus is up on the cross and he says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Does it seem like, like, like the brothers were expecting eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, And Joseph, though, says, I know it was bad, but God did something through it. So, Joseph sees the plan of God, and because God has changed his character so much, he's able to give grace and mercy to his brothers when his brothers deserve judgment and death. So, there's so much going on here, but this, this foreshadowing, this archetype, if you're an academician, or this harbinger, the story of Joseph is very familiar to the people of Israel. So when Jesus shows up on the planet for such a time as this, and we hear that, that God speaks And the the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, the the Spirit of God hovers over Jesus like a dove. And he says, this is my son whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to everything he teaches you. It's it's a callback to Joseph because Joseph was the beloved son of his father. Jesus is the beloved son of the father. Joseph's father, Jacob, sent him on a mission to his brothers. Remember this whole thing started when Jacob said, Go off to this place and go find your brothers um, and bring a report back. So he sends him on a mission to his brothers, but God sent him on a mission for something even bigger. But Joseph's Joseph's father, Jacob, sent him on a mission to his brothers. God sent Jesus on a mission to his brothers, the nation of Israel. Joseph was despised, rejected, and conspired against. And Jesus was despised and rejected by his own people. And he was conspiring people, his own people conspired to kill him. Joseph was taken to a foreign land, Egypt, and separated from his family. Jesus was sent from heaven to earth. Definitely a foreign land. But even more than that, you remember the story of Jesus? When when Herod wants to kill all the kids under three years old, right after the Magi, the Babylonian magicians had shown up and they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then soon thereafter, they find out that Jesus is going to get killed. So where do they go? To Egypt. Now, you might think, okay, that's just kind of coincidental, but it's not to the Hebrew mind. When the Hebrew mind finds out that this little child, that that he didn't choose all this, but people show up and how'd they finance that trip for a carpenter to go to a foreign land and not have money? With gold? God knew what he was doing. And so the Redeemer of Israel has to make a trip to Egypt before the exodus and the redemption can take place. So God was showing the story of Joseph to the Hebrew people who see these connections when they read, and it's not an accident that these things show up in the Gospels. They read this and they hear, who else went to Egypt? Who else was a redeemer? Joseph was falsely accused, though innocent, was arrested and taken to prison, suffering for the sins of someone else. Jesus was falsely accused, and though innocent, would be arrested and taken away to suffer for the sins of all of us. Joseph was then raised up from the dungeon and seated in glory on the throne of that kingdom. Jesus would be raised up from the pit of hell from death itself and seated on the throne of glory. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Joseph became the redeemer, the one who bought back Egypt and was responsible for saving the entire nation, the known world, from death. Jesus would become the redeemer of all humanity if humanity will receive it. The Savior of the world. It's no accident. There is much, much more we could say. I won't do it to you today. But I want to remind you of a couple of things that we've seen throughout this. God uses history as a tool for His purposes. God isn't accidental. God doesn't react. God used Pharaoh, a pagan, demon worshiping man who thinks he's God, a man who believes in a whole culture that believes that there's chaos in the world. The world is chaos. And because of the divinity of Pharaoh and the power and the authority of Pharaoh, that his power grows as order is pushed back. It's the same thing that was going on in Rome with the Pax Romana when Jesus was born. With the, the Rome that all roads lead to Rome. They, they've tried to pull all of the known world together. And they tried to push back chaos. They said, if Rome is not in charge, we're going to conquer you. And then we're going to make you part of us. We're going to put up aqueducts and we're going to bring culture and we're going to create roads and infrastructure. They believed that, that the world could only be at peace if Rome ruled. But there's stuff going on that we don't always see. This story shows us that God uses even a pagan king who thinks he's God and who has the wrong view of the world that he's pushing back chaos. God is the one who spoke order into chaos. God is the one who brought light into darkness. God is the one who always starts from darkness and moves to light. God's the one who always starts with chaos and throws it away and brings order. And yes, he allows some chaos. He allows some darkness in our world, but, but it's to accomplish his purposes. He allows Pharaoh to think that Pharaoh's in charge so that God can bring his people to Egypt to set them up so that they grow into a nation. And if God had not done that, Jesus would not have been born. We would all be doomed because this is how God accomplished his Task and he used a pagan king, the most powerful man on the planet, who did not know he was being used by God. God used him to accomplish his purposes. History is just a tool to God. He did it again with Rome and he's doing it with us. And that's one of those sub themes in this passage that God is not afraid of what happens in our politics, in our culture, in our nation, in our world. God is using history to accomplish his story, to accomplish his mission. And it's the same story as it was for Joseph, as it is for Jesus, as it is for us today. God knows that people are lost and they're desperate and they die without him. So he brought Joseph, unbeknownst to Joseph, he allowed pain in Joseph's life. For what reason? Joseph didn't know until the end. And then he saved the known world and grew a people. When Jesus came, he came because people are, they're, we're doomed for all of sin and fall short of God's glory. And the, 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 the wages, what we earn from our sin, is death, separation from God. But God came in and he, and, he, and he moved in next door. And he saved. And then when he left and he went back to heaven after he had died and been resurrected and, and went back, he left us the Holy Spirit. And so now God doesn't live in a place or in one particular human body. He lives in every one of you. And he's trying to accomplish the same thing that he tried to accomplish with the Israelites and with Egypt through Joseph. What he, tried to accomplish, what he did accomplish on earth as Jesus, he's left us to do even greater things than him. Not my words, his. You will do even greater things than I have done. God is continuing to tell the same story. Is he telling that story through you? God, I hope so. Joseph is an archetype of Jesus. Joseph saw God's greater plan, expected God's greater reward, and chose not to hold against his brothers their sins. Jesus chose not, to, as God in flesh, chose not to hold our sins against us. But are we willing to not hold those who sin against us? To, are we willing to not hold their sins against us, against them? Because Jesus says, if you forgive those who sin against you, my heavenly Father will forgive you your sins. But if you don't, he won't. He tells us to not return evil with evil, but evil with kindness. He tells us to pray for those who persecute us. He tells us to love our enemies, love those who want harm to come to us. I pray to God that you and any unbeliever, any person that's walked away from the church, any person that's been, that's been burned by the church, that you know that you win them back because of your kindness Because you show them grace and mercy. And because every time they shoot an arrow into your heart, you break it off. You say, Lord, this is for you. You forgive them and show them the grace that God wants to show them. Because that's what Joseph did. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. That's what John did. That's what Peter did. And that's what we do. The second kind of sub-theme is that God doesn't waste your pain. Joseph didn't know what was going on. He got a dream. He made the mistake of opening his mouth and telling his brothers. But if he hadn't done that, God would have figured out another way to get him into Egypt, to get him as a slave, to get him into, to, into power to interpret some dreams so that he could save the known world and then so that he could save the people of Israel so that he could continue his plan of redemption and bring Christ to the world. But Joseph suffered greatly. The people of Egypt and Canaan suffered greatly. They had to give up all their money. They had to give up all their animals. They had to give up all their grain and all their property. Did God waste it? No. Will he waste yours? No. Will you always know what he's going to do with the pain and the betrayals and the illnesses and the diagnoses And the anxieties, the sleepless nights, we always know, we always figure out, will he always show you how it's worked, what what it was intended for evil, that he's intended for good? Probably not. But from the day that Adam and Eve ate from a live tree and brought death into the world, to the day that Jesus, God in flesh, the light of the world, died on a dead tree and brought life to the world, until today... God has promised I will buy you back and I will make all wrong things right and I will use history to do it. So we need not worry about God and our culture and the election that seems to still be going on. We need not worry when we have a wayward child. We pray we don't worry. We need not worry when it looks like the whole world is turning against us and that we don't have to ask God, why is he doing this? We ask God this. How would you have me be faithful even though it looks like I shouldn't be? Because faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't see. How will you be a foreshadow of what's coming next? How will you be a harbinger of God's glory? How will you re- be like Joseph? Joseph. <coughs> Because the alternative is to be like Joseph's brothers. You see someone or something you don't like and you try to get rid of it. Rest assured that if you try to get rid of something, it's probably something God wants to use to work for something good in your life, whether you recognize it or not. Will you be a people... who forgive, who bless, and who expect God's greater reward and God's greater plan. And will you be a person to do the same? Last thing for this series. You've heard this from me before. You will hear this from me again. But if the blood of Christ is sufficient to forgive you your sins against God and your sins against others, then it must be true that the blood of Christ is sufficient to forgive other people's sins against you. It's either sufficient or it's not. So if you're holding a grudge, if you're harboring and nursing bitterness that is not God's plan for you, He wants you to be like Joseph. What you intended for evil. God intended for good, but I want to acknowledge your pain in it. When you forgive another person that's harmed you, it costs you twice. The first time it, har- it costs you when they harm you, when they sin against you. The second time it costs you is when you give up your right to ever hold it against them again. It is costly. But remember who else did that. If God held our sins against us, we're doomed. It cost him when we walked away, and it cost him on the cross to make sure that we never have our sins held against us. The least we can do as followers of Christ is treat other people the way Christ treats every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, you're God, we're not, and we're so thankful. Thank you for the story of Joseph. Thank you for the story of Jesus because neither of them are just stories. They're redemption. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. And I pray that you'll give us the courage and the humility to forgive those who harm us so that we can show them who you are and whose we are. We pray this in Jesus' name through the power of your spirit who lives within us, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Amen. About between 200 and 250 years before this event took place, God told Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, about 200 to 250 years before this, God told Abraham that his descendants were going to end up in a foreign land, we found out it's Egypt, and they were going to suffer there for 400 years. But then after that, he's going to bring them out, and he's going to do amazing things through them, and all the world is going to be changed because of his offspring. So God, 250 years before this, told them about a 400-year thing, and then in all of that, he points us toward Jesus coming. So God is a God of covenant and his covenant with us has always been the same. I will be your God. You will be my people. And even when you don't act like my people, I'm still going to be your God. I'm going to draw you back. That's why we celebrate the covenant of baptism or the, the, the sacrament of baptism, because the child doesn't know. Joseph didn't know. He didn't know what was going to happen, but God did it anyway. God loves children, and he's going to grow them up and draw them in. And it reminds each of us that it's not that we first love him, it's that he first loves us, that he draws us, he calls us. And yes, he does allow suffering. Why? I don't know. But I tell you what, if God has something greater to do in you, through you, and for you, if he showed you what you would have to go through in order to have that end, you'd say no. But you can be faithful in the next thing, in the next thing. And the next thing, so that his greater reward, that's what we count on, his greater reward, his bigger plan. Not the the idiosyncrasies of our own experiences, but the glory of God that he's trying to accomplish and he chooses to use you to accomplish something huge. So let us be a people that always count on God, that we're not afraid, we're not anxious, but we're faithful, hopeful, merciful, and graceful to all those around us so that people can see our good works and then praise our Father in heaven. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. That's the look on God's face. God smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Amen. Go with it in the peace of Christ.